Vladimir Putin, what is his motivation? Is he a dictator or is he just misunderstood? Why is it seen as a crime to speak with him? What have we learned from Tucker Carlson's interview and how does this affect the war in Ukraine? All this and more. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Create Your Own Life show. I am your host, Jeremy Ryan Slate, the CEO and co-founder of Command Your Brand. And we help our clients to combat cancel culture by placing them on the right podcasts and new media. You can grab our brand new PR book, recently ranked number one on Amazon over at bestpodcastbook.com. We have a return guest with us today, um, who is somebody who's been on the show for three times. This will be her fourth time on the show. And it's funny because I surveyed the audience on YouTube and I said, who do you guys want to have back? And uh, today's guest was over, overwhelmingly asked for by our YouTube audience. So we have Dr. Olga Ravasi back, back with us today. So welcome back to the show, doctor. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to be with you again. And, and big shout out to the audience. I'm, I'm so grateful for that. It was overwhelming. We ran a poll on, um, well, we actually asked for people to, to give ideas first, right? Like, who do you want back on? Then we ran a poll and it was overwhelming. People love your analysis. They love what you have to say. They love your, your viewpoint on geopolitics. So for people listening that may not know who you are, just give us a little bit about who you are and what you do. And then we'll get into today's topic after that. Sure. So um, I guess under President Trump's administration, I can start there, although I've done a lot of political uh, legwork even prior to that, ever since the 1990s. Uh, started an ethnic media outlet, but um, my particular focus is foreign policy, um, security, counterterrorism, and transnational crime. So especially under President Trump, I worked as an independent contractor. I was an advisor to several um, non-governmental organizations and, again, hitting that sector of transnational crimes, counterterrorism. I do carry a highly qualified expert designation for the Directorate of National Intelligence. Um, I did run a portion of President Trump's campaign, which was Serbian Americans for Trump. That was the official uh, coalition to President's re-election campaign. Uh, we do run a PAC in the background. I've been in education. Uh, for most of my life. So kind of an eclectic background, but again, my specific focus is is foreign policy, security, uh, counterterrorism, and transnational crimes. That's where I thrive. Very cool. And I actually <clears throat> had a little bit of a back and forth with your uh, Serbs for Trump uh, Twitter account uh, today as well, because I recently did an episode on the James Altucher show where I talked about uh, Rome's crisis of the third century and how it compares to now and uh, reminded everyone that uh, Rome's emperor Trajan was actually a Serbian, the first of the yes. five good emperors. Um, but I guess getting into the to the subject of today, how do you react to Tucker Carlson's recent interview of uh, of Putin because there was a lot of <clears throat> interesting back and forth. There was a lot of a very very long history lesson at the beginning, which was which was quite interesting. I took Russian history in college, so I at least had that understanding of it. But I guess how do you react to I guess not just the interview, but also a lot of the thoughts around it. So I think the interview was pretty interesting uh, for us Slavic people. The long history lesson is just your standard, you know, Sunday afternoon lunch with the family standard fare. So to us, no surprise. Um, I'm sure someone like yourself, who is also a history buff, you can appreciate that. 
I found the commentary much more fascinating, particularly from the Western portion of our both mainstream and then other media and pundits and influencers. And even from Tucker himself, even though he said it's going to probably take him another year to absorb everything that's happened and, and how the interview went. But the particular lesson in history tells me and shows me that fundamentally East and West think in completely different um, ways and we operate completely differently. Now, for someone like myself, who is Slavic, essentially, and who spent 30 years here in the United States, but then, you know, maybe less than 20 years, I'm giving myself away in terms of my age, uh, less than 20 in Serbia, I can see very well and I understand both sides. Um, and I am blessed for that. I am blessed to be able to absorb and understand both sides of, of this showdown, if you will, simply because um, I think the fundamental difference is that the Slavic people, and particularly Russia, operate within the framework of thousands of years of history, where for us Americans in particular, we operate within that very pragmatic, quick thinking, two, three hundred years of what we've accomplished and what we can pragmatically do now. However, given that we live in a time period where we are aggressively even destroying that little bit of history that we have, which is wonderful history and we should all be proud of it, but we are actively working on completely dismantling it, destroying it and rewriting it. Even what we had to lean on as historical background for our own nation, we don't even have that anymore. So I could see how much of what Putin was saying was either frustrating or annoying, or it just went over people's heads because they can't quite comprehend why that was relevant. And again, I said many even European nations used to operate within that framework of their long traditional royal histories and then, you know, transition into democracies or whatever the governmental uh, framework was, all of that is being destroyed. So you can see a really big difference in between East and West, and that reflects in the geopolitical landscape, that reflects in terms of policy, in terms of uh, perception, in terms of diplomacy, in terms of how each superpower plays its game on the international stage. And there is this interesting saying that Russians saddle their horse very slowly, but once they saddle it and they're up, they ride really fast. Wow. And I think, I think that that is what we're seeing. And it is unfortunate that the, let's say the Anglo-Saxon West, and then the, I, I often go back to this, there is hierarchy in whiteness, if you wish. Uh, just like there's hierarchy and we talk a lot about neocolonial history and we talk a lot about race relations in this country, where there's something to be said about also differences between perceptions within white cultures, white communities themselves, whether they're Anglo-Saxon or Germanic or Slavic. And I would argue that the imposition almost of the Anglo-Western framework of culture has sort of almost put down uh, the Slavic 
importance and relevance and influence where you can kind of tell in in that interview that Vladimir Putin and entire, I guess, former Soviet Union bloc, which is Russia today, uh, was hoping to be embraced by the West, was hoping to be on parallel footing and, and on equal footing, essentially, because again, you, you see even uh, Tucker's almost uh, bafflement by the fact that Moscow is such a huge city. It's a beautiful city. It's very well developed. It has a beautiful metro where you're not going to get mugged, raped, beaten, or whatever. Um, and he compares it to what we effectively have now in the West, especially in big American cities. Um, Russia has reinvented itself. And I think part of that American pragmatism that we have had for, you know, two, three hundred years of our history was let's solve the problems. Let's not think into history. Let's not worry about that. But that has also gotten us into a lot of trouble because mm -hmm. eliminating completely from the geopolitical conversation thousands of years of strife ethnic strife, religious strife, history, culture of all these other regions and other nations and other peoples that we are effectively getting ourselves involved with, aggressively involved with, even uh, imposing our will upon them is getting us to the point where we are essentially hated around the world because they expect us to also respect who they are as cultures, as humans, as people on that fundamental level that to respect their traditions. And we really haven't done that. And then there's something to be said about the fact that as a nation, for us, we have all become an American. And I think that is a fantastic concept. No matter where you came from, you embrace the American way of life. You embrace Americanism, at least for us who are legal immigrants, who are Americans by choice, first and foremost, and who have embraced what it meant to be an American. So you would go up to people who have been here for several generations and kind of ask them about their ancestry, whether they're Italian, German, Irish, Polish, whatever they are, Serbian. And a lot of them would say, oh, I don't know. I'm just a mix of everything. But first and foremost, I'm an American. Where I now see a problem is that we are also effectively dismantling the national identity, the sovereign national identity of an American that is shameful, that is something to be looked down upon, that is something that paints a target on your back and you are labeled all kinds of terrible derogatory names, where in the other part of the world, sovereign Russians are very proud of being Russian. And nobody is targeting them for that. Sovereign Serbs or Poles lately, they have elected very liberal government, which I find um, very odd. Uh, they were holding strong for a while. But you look at Hungary, uh, you look at Hungarians, Romanians, that entire part of, I would say, Central and Eastern Europe, they have held on strongly to their Slavic identity, to their Orthodox Christian identity, and also to the fact that they're sovereign nationals of those specific respective nations. And they are not embarrassed by that. They are not targeted. We are now being targeted for being proud Americans. So once you strip from us the proud sovereign Americanism, and we have long ago lost the Irish, the Italian, the German, whatever the ancestry was. Well, the question is, who are we today? Do we really know the Western geopolitical construct overall? 
doesn't really know who it is because we are demolishing our history. We are demolishing our faith. We are demolishing the tradition. We are demolishing the family structure. And we are up against nation like China, like India, like Russia, who are extremely proud and sovereign in that identity. And that is actually the greatest battle that we are facing. It is the cultural battle. And I am afraid that they have an upper hand um, in this simply because they have stuck to their traditions. They revamped their traditions because we often view Russia within their uh, communist past. But the communist past is just a speck of dust in their long history where, again, Putin really took the time to lecture about that so that the West would understand where they're coming from, why they operate on the level that they operate on, and why this is so important for them. And ultimately, I didn't find his interview aggressive or threatening. However, I did find it very decisive. Mm -hmm. And it showed us again where the red lines are and what they will not allow. Um, I think there is some sour grapes there simply because after the Cold War, they thought they were promised to be embraced, to be on the leveled playing field and to partially almost be in not just embraced it to NATO, but into other Western organizations. And that never happened. And you have well, to well, Tucker actually Russia. made a comment about that yesterday. He was speaking. He, at, he was speaking at an event. um, I think it was like the in World, Gover- so the World Government from Conference. Moscow to Belgrade, Serbia, and from Belgrade to Dubai. So I knew his itinerary as he was departing Moscow. Yeah, and he and he mentioned in in this talk in Dubai that he, Bill Clinton was not, you know, basically told uh, Putin that they weren't allowing him into NATO, and he, and he's and Tucker had mentioned like if you allow that to happen, like any sort of conflict or any sort of sort of tension is, is over. Like it's done yes. with, like we've, we've actually reached a, you know, you're bringing Russia into the body that was created to actually fight Russia, which, exactly. which is quite interesting. And, and that was the point of, uh, well, first of all, I just want to finish this. Oh, yeah. uh, obviously you cannot look at European or Western history without Russia, no matter what anybody says, uh, they are a fundamental part of the development of that, I would say, still, even though they partially belong to the East, but to the royal Western traditional Christian civilization. Russia always played a huge part in that royal imperial Russia. We were allies. We keep forgetting that we were allies. Uh, And anytime you have an analysis such as this, you will be labeled Putin apologist, And everybody has to preface their analysis with, well, I'm not defending Putin. And I find it odd that we even have to say this. I mean, listen, I've never been to Russia. I, you know, know here and there a few Russians that live here, but barely maybe three total that I can think of. So, I mean, this has nothing to do with being a Russian apologist or Putin apologist. This has to do with reality, geopolitical reality. This has to do with a lot of our own internal problems that we are not able to solve. And then we are looking outwards. And somehow a lot of people were expecting also this interview to be like this big show. Why? Because that is the political show. Essentially, it is a show. It's theater that we are used to here. 
our politicians are actors. Our politicians don't speak from their mind, from their heart. They are not really that well educated. I mean, can you imagine? And not just let's not pick on Joe Biden right away because the man is cognitively disabled. But here we are demonstrating again what a tolerant nation we are, that we even have a mentally disabled president. And we have embraced that tolerance and diversity even in that respect. Uh, but again, let's not pick on Joe Biden. Let's pick anybody within our Western geopolitical landscape, whether it's in the United States or in the West. Can they really sit down for two hours and give you a history of their own nation from you know the earliest foundings, from the earliest centuries through today without notes, without teleprompters, they can't. So I also That's think- That's a really, well, really important point too, because that was something I was actually discussing with my wife is like, I, I think if you look at, if you asked any of our, our politicians here, like I don't think anybody in the last hundred years, you could really say they're, they're a statesman, right? Like they know no. American history, you know, like the back of their hand, like you're talking about. And I think oftentimes you're not like, like with Putin, it felt like you're getting like, this is the Russian history as Russians know it. From, yes. from an American, you're getting, well, this is the history I'm telling you because this is what my you know, group, whatever it may be, told me I have to tell it this way. And I think I, we, we really have lost, you know, what it means to be, you know, a statesman, like a, like a Churchill or somebody like that. Exactly. We don't have anyone like that anymore. And, and we lost that, unfortunately, by our own doing. We are doing this or it is being done to us rather deliberately. Because people who don't know their own history, their own ancestry, people who cannot be proud of their own history are meant to just follow and, and meant to do what they're being told. And that is the place that we are in, unfortunately, right now. Those who wish and desire to control us, they could put out any narrative that they want and the people literally have to swallow it and embrace it as fact. I'm sorry, I have my dog here who is trying to <laughs> chew on my sleeve. No worries. Uh, as we're doing this, okay, now you need to stop. Well, I want to I, I want to <laughs> add to what you were talking about earlier because I think it's it's there's a really important point about like our perspective as Americans. Like I I don't think that we we do a great job of and you were you were covering this like really understanding the cultures of other countries when we kind of come yes. into issues. We kind of come in for well, this is what I see it as now, and I know best, and that's how I'm going to handle the situation. And I remember when when the Ukraine war first happened, um, you know, I looked at it and I said, well, you know people forget that Russian culture actually started in Kiev and it moved, it moved yes, east to Nov Novgorod and then, you know, mm -hmm. it ends up in St. Petersburg and everything like that. Nobody knows that story, right? Like you look yeah. at it and, and Russia is innately, it's a, it's a, it's a step culture. So like, that's a very brutal culture to live in because to survive on the Russian steps, you know, near the Ural mountains, like you got to be tough. You have to be yes. tough. And you know, the, the basically during Peter the Great, Russia makes this kind of four, three or 400 years in, in culture change to, to kind of become more like French culture. And, and it only changes because Peter the Great's like, Hey, we're all French now. We're all going to be like this. So I think we, we really don't understand other cultures. And then we have to, t we try to tell them how, how we think they should operate and then wonder why they won't. Exactly. And I think, again, as I said, to a certain degree, it's great that everybody can become French or everybody can become American. I think that was something that the Western nations have done well within our framework of democratic republics. We have embraced everybody, but there was an expectation that you actually embrace the culture that you are arriving into, that you assimilate, that you educate your children in the culture, in the language of that nation. We have stopped requiring that. See, the, the many 
this is a nation, and again, I'm going back to the United States simply because Europeans have a little bit of a different history, because I think as proud as they are of some of their royal histories, like French court and the English court, um, the English still obviously uh, have their royal family. However, a lot of it is now becoming more for show than anything else. And do they really have influence? But you and I have had this discussion in the previous show, and I think our audience understands how the British monarchy plays a role, especially in our life here. But at the same time, you know, looking at that old imperial royal families with the new immigration, with the new Zoomer generation, they look at that as uh, colonial oppressive regimes, essentially. So they don't want to have any part of it, any tradition, which I think is beautiful. I think European traditions are beautiful and must be and should be preserved. I belong to those European families. I belong to that tradition, which has kind of um, sort of simulated new life on this new continent that we have created and we have made better as Americans. Um, I think all of that must be preserved, must be embraced. But again, with the new immigration, with the open borders, not just here in the United States, but in Europe, you are replacing the population. You are having a massive demographic change that hates everything that we have stood for, everything that we have built, and everything that they deem is white colonial mentality. No matter whether you are Slavic or Germanic or Anglo-Saxon, to them, you are white and you are all the same and you are oppressing us. But yet, they still keep arriving into the nations that have allegedly oppressed them. So you can't really... Uh, get any rational reason or logic out of these people. But at the same time, as I said, I think there is an element of jealousy when you look at our political establishment and our political elite and the way they view Russia. Again, as I said, you cannot separate the Russian empire or Russia itself today from the European history, but also partly from the American history. I mean, honestly, if you sit down with anyone today and ask them rationally, reasonably, why do you hate Russia? Okay, I can understand, oh, we hate Putin, just like we, some people hate Trump, some people hate Biden. Okay, that is an individual that people may have a preference for or not. But again, overall, why do we hate Russia? So, Well, that's the I question I actually happens, have, because I think if you look at it like... Does anybody know the answer to that? Well, I, my question would be like, how big of a part do the intelligence agencies play in that? That would be my Absolutely. real question. Because if you look at that, I don't know if you saw, there was a report. Um, it was on Fox News. Um, mm -hmm. Just That's like the, last yes, about the CIA, day or two about the CIA basically, you know, being behind the whole Russia collusion case. And, and apparently the files that, that showed that information are now missing. So I think at the same time, like, how much do the intelligence agencies have to do with all this? Well, because you not know, just intelligence Because you can look at what happened in Ukraine, media. right? Sorry. The media also, the intelligence agency, and you can actually, the intelligence and the media are kind of a revolving door also, because the media has always been part of the intelligence network. I mean, who better to employ than journalists and people who have access to everything and anything um, to actually be your spooks? I mean, I have spent time in intelligence, obviously, based on my work and everything that I've done. So, I mean, we can understand how the media kind of plays this game with the intelligence and, and not just the media, but then you look at the pop culture and Hollywood. I mean, for so many decades, 
we have been watching the movies where, you know, the Russian is always the bad guy and he's always a gangster and he's always some, you know. So there are certain things that we just have gotten used to and the frameworks that were created for us and that we must operate within those frameworks. And once you step out of them, like Tucker has just done and kind of look at looked at the world around him, and said, wait a minute, I never realized this is so. And as frustrating as it may be, but there is that individual competition, let's say, between politicians, between our political elites. And then you look at, you know, not just Putin, but you look at Lavrov, you look at Zaharova, whatever you may think about them, they are extremely well-educated. They are very intelligent they can run circles around many people who are their counterparts from the Western world because, again, we are deliberately educated in a very limited way. We are deliberately fed only a specific amount of information. We now all participate continuously in this black op and gladio operation simply because we all have access to social media. So we're all participants in this vast information warfare that is being waged against us and and willingly we are participating but we don't maybe understand always what the consequences are so as as great as it is that we have x and few other social platforms that are open so you can have this the variety of information that we have today at the same time it is also so easy for intelligence agency in cahoots with the media to actually keep putting other stories to deflect our attention to something else so we would look elsewhere or even deliberately placing um, completely off the rocker stories so we would look in that direction but not look at uh, the real truth. So it's really hard to find at this day and age. You would think with so much information, we would actually know what's going on. I feel we are so much more confused today than we were when you had, you know, two channels on TV and you had the daily newspaper and that was it. People somehow were more informed then. If you appreciate the work that we do here and you want to support this show, the biggest way you can do that is by supporting the products that we know, use, and love and that I recommend for you here on the show. The first that I want to talk about is MyPillow, literally one of my favorite products. The MyPillow Classic is what I use every single night. It's handled a lot of my neck pain, a lot of my back pain. As you guys know, I've been a competitive powerlifter since my early 20s. I've retired from that, but I still take pretty good care of myself, and I'm still pulling some heavy weights as I pulled 500 last week on deadlift. And uh, our favorite product from we travel is actually the MyPillow Travel Pillow, and it's one of the things that we actually give to absolutely everybody. It is a great product to fall asleep on, so if you want to go to MyPillow.com slash C-Y-O-L, there's some really great holiday deals over there. You can get up to 66% off of select products. Also, one of the biggest changes in my life over the years has been handling a lot of the parasites in my body. A number of years ago, I did a cleanse with uh, Dr. Jason Dean, and we removed these things called liver fluke from my body. They were actually eating my liver. It was kind of crazy. And every few months, I do either a parasite cleanse or his full moon detox that he's doing right now. So if you want to head over to bravetv.store slash C-Y-O-L and uh, grab some of his amazing products over there. I know he has a great holiday special going on right now as well. Support our sponsors. They help the show to continue and they help us to do what we're doing. And we could not do it without you. And you could do it just by uh, 
using the power of the purse and uh, supporting the products that we love. Thanks. Let me let me ask you this then, because if if you look at it, you know you you look at you know what happened in in Maidan, you know that my, most likely was the CIA and the State Department. You look at mm-hmm. Nord Stream, which was it sounds like it was probably the CIA. You know, if you go back to to American history, um, you know we've spoken to Roger Stone about it on the show. You look at yeah. the JFK assassination, what the CIA, the role the CIA had to play in that. Are the intelligence agencies out of control, and are they actually running our country? In your opinion, essentially they are. Uh, there is no oversight. Again, I, I can't divulge that much. I've spent yeah. some time um, in, in that arena. And yes, they are out of control. There is really no one that can harness their power currently. And what is the most dangerous aspect of this is that many agencies whose job essentially was to look outward into the world and to protect us outside of our borders have actually turned their targets inward. And they are effectively targeting journalists like Tucker Carlson. Um, They are targeting American people. They are targeting duly elected politicians, including President Trump. So that is the most dangerous part of dismantling what we know as our constitutional republic. Because not only that have the domestic agencies done that, the foreign agencies have done it as well. And with the help of other friends in other nations, meaning other foreign agencies like MI6, like Mossad, like BND and all others, they are essentially an entity of their own that are not controlled by their respective governments, but are rather an extended weapon of the globalist elite, and they are in fact waging this war that is kind of opening up not only against the American people, but against every sovereign identity or every sovereign nation who is looking to preserve their national interests, their national identity, and their traditions that are mostly seeped in culture of Christianity. And if you look at Russia then, You have a nation that has gone back completely, did 180 from their speck of communist past into a very deeply traditional Christian Orthodox nation. Now, Orthodoxy, I will argue, is probably the last tenant and the last pillar that is still maintaining the traditional um, family structure the traditional outlook as far as how life should be. Um, Many in Catholic church have folded, Mm -hmm. Uh, not all. I think Catholics are still being held um, to to a high esteem in terms of preserving um, their Christian identity. But I think many, at least at the peak of what I, I would agree with that is, because you have look folded at this, a little bit. You look at this well, pope and this pope is a communist. Yeah, this 100%. pope is a communist. Yes, he is. And many call him the black pope. And, and will he actually be the one who will kind of completely transform what Catholic traditions have really been? Uh, Because if you look at Christianity, and again, you will be somebody who appreciates this when the Roman Empire fell apart or broke in half, uh, the Eastern Roman Empire, which is then your Eastern Orthodox Christianity, and then the Western, which is your um, Catholic side, those are the two largest denomination, Christian denominations in the world. And they effectively, and then you have the Protestantism and all the other um, 
other denominations that have grown out of Christianity. However, you look at Orthodox and Catholics, they should be the one preserving what the Christian identity of all people uh, actually is. And unfortunately, again, as I said, the Western uh, geopolitical framework has stepped away so far from those Christian traditions that today, I mean, all around Europe, you have churches that are being closed, that are being turned into restaurants, into spas, into whatever have you. And then you have an imported foreign element that is as primitive as it may be, and and much of it is, we have to be very open about it. Uh, Because again, you can import migrants who are able to assimilate, who are culturally somewhere on par with the nation that they are arriving to. However, once you import migrants that are culturally so far from what Western civilization effectively is, and I do think that part of Russia is a fundamental part of that, whatever you want to call it, Western Christian civilization, those things are not compatible. The migrants that we are importing are simply not compatible with our way of life because there is now no oversight. There is no criteria. Who are we bringing over to our lands? But see, our political elite doesn't care because for them, that can be, it's, it's, a sword with so many edges, actually, that they can use. Not double-edged, many edges. One is they will replace the local domestic population. Two, there can be just a little spark of don't feed them three meals in a day, which they are now being promised everywhere they go, and they are being paid for for free. Um, Have them skip a couple of meals. You think they're not going to start rioting? they will serve as your extended voting block. So, I mean, there's so many elements in this long-term strategy that the global elite, I have to say, again, as much as I vehemently disagree with it, they are 10 steps ahead of us because this is how they think. They have a strategy and they are aggressively implementing it, not just here, but all around the world, where again, those who are conservatives, well, the name says it, we conserve, we preserve. But the question is, have we really conserved anything lately? Mm-hmm. Because again, we don't have a strategy. We don't fund international NGOs who will actually teach children our ways, our traditions, our ideologies. We don't fund anything. We are consistently in this defensive mode. We don't have a long-term strategy. And we don't know how to play the game. And and I also will argue that many, if we call it Republicans or rhinos, um, don't want to play that game. They really just want to play the game of funneling money to each other with their Democrat buddies. And it's a big money laundering scheme, including what's happening in Ukraine. But you can see something fascinating happening. And I think you can see that with the vote um, to impeach Mallorca's last night. The age gap between those who have voted to send more money to Ukraine uh, are the same people who voted against impeaching Mallorca's. And, and the average age with those who voted to send more money, with those who love war, with those who um, would still protect Mallorca's no matter whether they're Democrat or Republican, 
average age is like 68, 70. I mean, that tells you the kind of dinosaurs we have in our government who have sat here for 40 years and have done nothing but enrich themselves and have completely destroyed our nation and our history with it. And then you have this younger generation. So, I mean, I have to say I'm positive because the younger generation that's coming is very aware that the perpetual war must stop, that we cannot fund anything or anybody anymore, that we are done. We must protect our own country. We must fund our own people. We must close the border, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody knows what those issues are. There is a tectonic shift, but I don't know how quickly we can get to really changing it. President Trump might be possibly the answer. Um, but again, I don't know if we will even get to that election. So let me ask this. I know you have to run to another appointment too. So there, there's one more thing I wanted to cover. And I guess this brings us back to um, the Putin conversation. I guess, you know, the, you talked about kind of the, the the funding in Congress and things like that. And there's been talk about, you know, more funding now to send more money to Ukraine. And, and it, it, it sounded like per the conversation Tucker had with Putin, that if we were to stop funding it, that could be the the end to the war. And then also we, we look at it as well, you know, Boris Johnson got them to stop negotiating. I, yes. I guess when you look at it, do you think we can negotiate a settlement? Because there's even been talk here in the US, well, you know, Putin can't keep Crimea. Well, I know for Putin, that's a, that's a non-starter. Like he has to have Absolutely. Crimea in order to keep going. So do you think we can negotiate a settlement or do you think this helps to get us there? We can negotiate it tomorrow if we were to stop funding this war. But see, again, the political establishment doesn't have any interest in stopping the funding. Why? Because the money comes back to them, first of all. It goes back to the uh, military industrial complex, to all of the companies that everybody always mentions, uh, defense corporation, the defense companies. And then secondly, um, we don't have an interest in stopping this because, again, as I mentioned earlier, the hierarchy of whiteness. Slavic people are on the last level when it comes to the appreciation of whiteness. So there is a little bit of, um, let's say, discrimination uh, in terms of how whites perceive each other. And the Slavs, especially looking back into Karl Marx, for example, and the fact that the Western politicians have actually openly embraced Marxism. Well, if you look at what Karl Marx said, was that Slavs were equal to pigs, that they were the worst kind of people uh, imaginable. So what do you expect from those who have embraced Marxism, first of all, and second of all, as Anglo-Saxons essentially deemed themselves on the higher uh, level of hierarchy than the Slavs? So it is in their interest to keep the war going because who is dying? Slavic Ukrainians and Slavic Russians, both Orthodox Christians. So they really don't care. This is a cannon fodder for them. Why would they care? It's a proxy war. So if the Slavs are dying, nobody cares. If uh, people in the Middle East are dying, nobody really cares again because of some of that hierarchy. Um, I don't know if you saw this. I believe it was Wall Street Journal. Mike Pence and Pompeo jointly wrote an op-ed, we must strike Iran. Why must we strike anyone? What is this mentality of consistently seeking to strike someone? But see, again, money flows once you have a boogeyman. 
This is, again, I don't need to preface this with, well, this is not in defense of Iran. That's not what this conversation is about. Why must we keep resorting to striking anyone? Why must we keep resorting to bombing anyone into submission? But that is the way of the alleged international rules-based order that we have created. And it is based in rules for thee, but not for me. And it is pure power. We And, and we must op- be open about this. War is not fair and war is not meant to be fair. It is a power trip. And yes, we are an extremely powerful nation or have been up until so many decades ago. But what we have done now, and we will not stop unless American people somehow find a way to stop it. uh, Our politicians don't know any other way. And they are so arrogant and ignorant. And that is the worst possible combination that they don't know any other way, you know, with some examples that I have just mentioned, the younger guard that's coming up that understands that we must stop this madness. But again, going back to Mike Pence and Pompeo, let's strike Iran. And I know that they have hundreds, if not thousands of political establishment allies who are ready for such nonsense. So I have to be optimistic, but I am optimistic in a way where it's going to get very dark, much darker than it is. It seems like everything is calm. We are in an election year. You know, things are meant to start getting crazy and they're not. It's very quiet. It's not Almost summer yet, though. They they usually wait till summer that. to unveil most of those things. Remember 2020? Uh, exactly. So for now, it's eerily quiet, like ahead of something, ahead mm-hmm. of some huge calamity that may be coming our way, but who knows? I may be wrong and I may be, um, you know, we, we may just get to November and have an election and try to fight it out. But again, they've got those machines. <laughs> well, I, I would, I would say to our audience too, if, if you, if you haven't heard of it, it's a, it's a very old video now at this point, I think it's like the early two thousands, but, um, go on YouTube and look for the West Clark seven. Um, and it talks yes. about ending with Absolutely. Iran, Iran is kind of the final, you know, thing they've wanted to go to. This is, this is a plan they've been working on for a very long time. They're just kind of been a bunch of hiatuses in the middle. Cause it wasn't as quick and easy as they thought it would be. It is. And, uh, Wesley Clark has laid it out and he was even shocked himself, but, you know, I'm sure he was shocked for a few minutes and then he embraced it. And just to to that point that you mentioned earlier and Tucker mentioned it, how Putin was asking Bill Clinton to um, join NATO and uh, Russia effectively would have been part of an alliance that was meant to protect itself from Russia. Sure. Uh, once the Soviet Union collapsed, and I know we had a conversation about this, once the Soviet Union collapsed, NATO was deemed unnecessary. So NATO really didn't have a role anymore. After the Warsaw Pact, there was really nothing for NATO to do because as a defensive alliance, it had a specific job, it had specific jurisdictions. After that, there was nothing for it to do, but see the generals and all those who have benefited greatly from the transfer of wealth and the transfer of money through NATO and all of these other organizations have gotten so used to this fabulous life that they were leading uh, that they needed to reinvent NATO. And this is where Yugoslavia came into play. And this is where this whole concept of balkanization came into play. NATO picked the Balkan region because it was very ripe 
to do shenanigans that are very divisive, which is exactly what they are doing to us now. It's very easy to play this divisive role to keep people completely in a state of fear, in a state of chaos. And ever since then, NATO has become much more offensive, much more aggressive. And I would argue NATO is not anymore the force for good. And I am pretty sure, and I know this for a fact, that President Trump is not fond of NATO. Uh, even Ambassador Rick Grinnell has been saying that if you are not paying your 2%, you either don't get to vote or decide on um, admission of new members, or you actually don't get to be defended by the United States. Why should we put American lives and American taxpayer money into defense of these other nations? But again, it is the empire that we are defending, and it is the empire of the globalist elite that we are defending, and NATO is just yet another extended hand of theirs. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Ravasi, I know you have another appointment to get to, so I do want to respect your time on that. For people listening, you know, where can they follow you? Where can they connect with your content? You know, and, and how can they find out more about you? So they can go on YouTube, State of Affairs with Dr. Ravasi. They can find us on X. It is now officially Serbs for Trump 2024. Uh, I have also recently joined an editorial board of a new global international portal called Intelligencer Today, so they can look for us there. And uh, I am sure we are going to have an opportunity to speak again soon. Absolutely. Since you're back by popular demand, I, I expect it to be again soon. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. All the best to all of you. <laughs>